Thank you. Our reading this morning picks up in our series on Colossians. And we're going to be reading from Colossians chapter 1. And we're reading from verse 21 to verse 23. So Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you, uh, sorry, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This morning I put a very brief spoiler on Facebook about what we'll be looking at this morning when I, when I mentioned that this morning we're going to be looking at what I, a question of is there any possibility that Christians at times can suffer from what I'm calling a hostility hangover? Now, I did debate, am I allowed to use the word hangover in church? Is that an appropriate word? But I've gone with it anyway because the metaphor works. So if there's any issues with that, chat with me at the end. But hopefully by then you understand exactly why I'm using that phrase. And it all makes sense. It's actually quite nice. Um, we, we listened to that video of the song during the offering. And it, and it came and it had that phrase over and over. And I'm paraphrasing this. So, but tough. And it said this. Put down your chains and take up your name. And I think if anything could summarise what I want to share with us this morning, that would probably do it quite nicely. To ensure that as Christians we put down the chains that have bound us, that have been completely shattered in Jesus Christ. And that we pick up that new name that he has given us. The grace of God and the lives of each and every one of us. Because as I studied and prayed and reflected over these verses, I began to wonder. It gives us very succinctly two categories of people. and We have the first one, alienated, hostile and doing evil deeds. And then we have this amazing grace that God pours out. In which through the death of Jesus Christ, God reconciles people back to himself. And then there is this new category of people. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. And I ask myself the question, which do we identify with? As Christians now, followers of Jesus Christ, which of those two categories as Christians do we feel we identify with? And which of these two categories do we feel is a bit alien to us? And that's why I want to talk about what I'm calling a hostility hangover. And the first thing I want to look at, I'm titling, Woe is Me. There is bad news to begin these verses as Paul assesses the conditions of his readers before they turn to Jesus Christ. His assessment of them is quite bleak as he speaks about this alienation and this hostility that they have and these evil deeds that they have been committing. And that is bad news. And I would imagine that before we found Jesus Christ, each of us would, would be able to identify with the summaries that Paul has given of the pre-Christian experience. 
But what is worse is this isn't just Paul writing to the, a select few people that happen to have done these things and been part of a bad bunch. This is what we see in the wider world that we live in. We prayed this morning for Syria. And I would imagine all of us have seen that picture. Every now and then you get a picture which you know is going to sit in the history books. It's one that summarizes an event in humanity. And we got one of those, I think, this week. And just as horrific as some of the previous ones that we have seen grace the front, pre- the front pages of our papers and the bulletin stories on the news websites. And it was this, this, the picture of the boy with blood on his face and mud on his face, sitting, looking entirely lost. And he's sitting, looking entirely lost because that boy is trapped up in a situation, in an environment of war. Where these kind of traits that Paul assesses as being present in humanity are evident at their absolute worst. The hostility, the alienation, and the evil deeds. And we see the impact that they have on this young life that has now witnessed things that most of us simply couldn't even imagine. And yet we know these traits, and when we see it, we see them powerfully and awfully demonstrated in this environment, flow right down and are part of the human psyche. The alienation from God because we are, as cultures and as individuals have turned away from God. We don't recognize God in our societies. And many people don't even recognize that there is a God. So there's alienation from God, but there's also alienation from one another. Human beings falling out. Human beings separating themselves from one another. And there is hostility with God because we've turned away from him and because we commit these evil deeds. But sadly, there is also humility, uh, hostility sorry, between human beings as well. Once more, these evil deeds play a large part, but the divisions and the separations which make up humanity are evident from these huge things that we see away up here that we get the photos of to these other things further down which impact our lives on personal levels, impact our relationships on personal levels, and impact so much more of how we live and relate to those around us. This assessment of humanity is one that is universal. Alienation, hostility, and evil deeds. And that's not good news. It's not. It's not good news because of how it impacts our relationship with God as a human race, but it's not good news for how it impacts our relationships with one another as a human race as well. Yet, when I give us the title of this first thing, I intentionally use the phrase, woe is me, because when I use that phrase, the first thing that my mind drifts to is Luke 18, verse 13. And Luke 18, verse 13, is where we find Jesus telling the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And they both appear before God. 
And we have one, the Pharisee, who thanks God for not being like other people. And he thanks God that he has this trait and that trait and the next trait. And he exalts himself. And then we have the tax collector. Tax collectors, by the way, were as low as it got. They really were. For those that might think, I'm trying to even think of an equation, I think at one point we would maybe consider a Tory voter like that, but maybe nowadays not so much. But these are people that you would look upon and think, no, they've, they've betrayed us. They have turned their back on the Jewish people, the Israelites, for profit by siding with the Roman Empire. So this is somebody that is detested. And this somebody that is detested simply bows his head, beats his chest, and says, God forgive me, a sinner. And Jesus declares him righteous. Righteous, made right by this act of repentance and this request for forgiveness. He is made right. That is what happens to that man and that is what happens to every single person that turns and trusts in Jesus Christ. I have spent the time at the beginning and the bad news with this phrase, woe is me. But I am convinced that virtually every single person my eyes have fallen upon in this room has got to that point where they have said, woe is me. And we have turned to God and asked for forgiveness. So I then ask the question, is this still us? Are we still beating our chests and saying, woe is me? And this is what I am calling the hostility hangover. Are we in places where we think that feeling miserable about the wrestling that we have and the sin that, we st- that can still entangle us, are we still in a place where all this weighs so heavily that our concept of holiness is looking and feeling miserable? Or can we hear radical and revolutionary words? Because that's what grace is. Like what Jesus says in Luke 18, 13, where he declares the person that beats their chest and asks for forgiveness, that they are made righteous. So I wonder, do any of us have that potential for that hostility hangover? When actually, when I read verses like this, we relate more to being alienated, hostile, and doing evil deeds. And we can't actually relate much at all to what, what is said that we, are made, that we are presented holy, blameless, and above reproach. Can we relate to that? And that's the second thing. The second thing is a question. And that is, is this our discovered reality? Because what we're told in these verses, in this bleak assessment of the situation that humanity finds itself in, is that God acts. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. This is what he's done. He's reconciled people back to himself. And this is what we call grace. This is what that song expressed so wonderfully. We are only ever one step away from God because all God asks of us is for this moment when we say, yeah, woe is me. I am placing my trust in Jesus Christ. And at that point, there is a new discovered reality in which we live in the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the joy of our God. 
And let's realise, this was no cheap effort that God made either. This wasn't God saying, I, I'll let you off the hook. No. We're going to share communion together in a little while. And this reminds us that the cost that was paid so that God could offer this reconciliation and this amazing presentation of us before him was the death of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ himself chose to face that cross, to taste death, not so that God could say, now nah, that'll do. You have just met the scratch. No. So that before, as Jesus did these things, our righteousness, sorry, his righteousness went upon us. And he could then declare us, like this verse says, holy and blameless and above reproach. What amazing things. Let's just sit for a second and take in what these words are saying. Holy. We are presented holy like God. There is no division there now. God does not look upon us and think, oh, they're not really making the grade. I'm going to kind of have to push them to the side and separate myself a bit from them until they up their game a bit and start taking this all seriously. No. The Bible says we are made holy. Not because our game and our skills meet the grade. Not because we have awesome and fantastic weeks. But because of Jesus Christ and our trust in him, this division between us and God is gone and he looks upon us and he sees someone who is holy. Someone he can draw close to and someone who can draw close to him without the divisions and the distinctions that were once there. And he sees us as blameless. Can you imagine that? God looks upon us as blameless. Now, I don't know what kind of week you've had this week, but I know what kind of week I've had this week, which ended ultimately with a wrestling match with a PC, which I lost because I threw a strop and switched it off by holding the power down. But our weeks, we know through the wrestling that we have that there are failings, there are difficulties, there is sin. But this righteousness that Jesus Christ has given us isn't dependent upon our ability to live perfectly. We are declared blameless because of what Jesus Christ has done, reconciling us and his body of flesh by his death. No wrongs, no guilt, no shame. The sin is gone. We needn't carry around guilt or misery and think that somehow this makes us holy. God sees us as blameless. The wrongs are gone. No failures, no mistakes, no sin, no guilt. Now that could seem too good to be true. But this is why it's called the gospel. The good news. Because we have these things in Jesus Christ. And he has now set us on this path where we walk before him. Not desperately trying to be perfect, but trusting in him. Relying on his strength and seeking to do his will on earth. 
for all the bad thoughts and all the mistakes and all the words and all the bad actions that we can all look into our past and see whether we look even this morning or this week or this month or this year or beyond. These things that can cause guilt and cause shame and cause us to shrink away from God. They're gone in Jesus Christ. These things do not define our identity before God. Our identity before God is what is said here, holy, blameless, and above reproach. So again, I ask the question, are there areas in our life where we are suffering from that hostility hangover, where we're still holding on to the guilt and the shame, and where we feel actually that looking or feeling miserable is the appropriate response before God? When what God is saying in verses such as these is that because of his act, his act in Jesus Christ, that the sin is gone, the shame is gone. What Jesus Christ intended to do when he came, which was to give us life in its fullness, which is reconciliation with God and freedom from sin, is that which we now have with God. What God sees when he looks at every single one of us this morning is someone who is holy and blameless and above reproach. Isn't that amazing? I think it's amazing because when I look into my heart, I'm very, very thankful that that is the case. That is what he sees. And now here is a bit where I want to give us a little bit of a challenge. Because I want to talk about now our holy brothers and sisters. Because it's one thing for us to see ourselves as God sees us, and this is vitally important, and that's why I wanted to sit this year in our identity. It's vitally important that we learn to identify ourselves as those who have received grace and are now holy and blameless and above reproach. And this isn't for us to feel arrogance, but for us to feel and grow in our relationship with God and the joy of our salvation. But as we learn to do that, there is another thing we must do too. And that is to see our brothers and sisters as God sees them. And here is the challenge. Have a wee look around you. Just a brief wee look. Those that you sit with this morning are your holy brothers and sisters. Now as you look around this church, it might be tempting that the first thing that we see when we look at our brothers and sisters might be the wrongs, the things that have happened, the mistakes that have been made, the sins that we knew about, the wrestling matches that are going on in our lives, the issues and the hurts. That these things can actually become that which define the status of our brothers and sisters. The God's call upon us is that we see our brothers and sisters as God does. As much as we see ourselves as the Bible declares us. So if when you happen to have a look around and things popped into our mind, things that define our brothers and sisters before the Bible does, that's where things such as forgiveness are so vitally important. Because if we don't practice things such as that, 
We can't see verses such as this powerfully impacting our lives and our views of one another. When we look around our fellowship, we see those God has called into his kingdom, called into our church family. And living as church family can be very hard work because there are times when things don't go as we would like and people say things that we definitely don't like. And these are the areas where we have to actually practice growth and seek to learn to forgive. But let there be one thing that there is of absolutely no doubt about, that when God sees us as individuals and then those who are sat beside us or behind us or in front of us or diagonally, he sees those who are holy and blameless and above reproach. And this is gospel for our lives because this is how God sees us. And it should be gospel for our relationships because this is how we are to see one another. How do we see our brothers and sisters? This is how we should see our brothers and sisters. Learn to see yourself and identify yourself with the work that God has wrought, and I'm using that word wrought, something he worked hard and painfully to achieve in our lives. And see that in our brothers and sisters as well. Misery isn't holiness. Grace is. So, next time you introduce one of your brothers and sisters, you can introduce them, this is my holy brother or my holy sister. Did you know that this person is blameless? It's holy and it's above reproach. And you'd be speaking the truth as God has decreed it. So, is there a hostility hangover? If so, let it go. Grab hold of the good news that verses such as these declare upon our lives. And lastly, stand firm. Stand firm. When Paul says here, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. What he's saying here isn't stand firm by doing X, Y and Z. No, he's saying stand firm on the hope of the gospel. There are so many things that are going to challenge that in our lives. We have that own internal guilt that can so often hinder us and drag us down and point out our flaws. We have an enemy who is eager to do the exact same thing. To point to us our failings and leave us depressed, disheartened, discouraged and defeated. But this isn't what God says. To stand firm in the hope of the gospel means to stand firm on the fact that God himself has declared us as holy, as blameless and above reproach. Now that doesn't mean that we become arrogant and think I'm now holy, I'm never going to sin and I don't have to deal with any of that stuff again. No, it doesn't mean that at all. But what it does mean 
is that in spite of all the internal wranglings that the Holy Spirit is present in us, sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus and giving us victory over, over these things slowly but surely, none of these wranglings actually change our status and our identity. We stand firm in the hope of the gospel, which is that Jesus Christ has forgiven us. Jesus Christ has saved us. Jesus Christ has reconciled us to God. And he achieved all this, not through our work or effort or good standing, but because we place our trust and our hope in him. So what does it mean to stand firm on the hope of the gospel? It means we trust in Jesus. It means when our guilt rises up, when the accusations fill our heads, when the discouragement comes, that we don't wallow in these, but we look to Jesus Christ, the offer and perfecter of our faith. We set our hope on him once more. And that we play and that we reinforce our trust in him. Standing firm isn't about self-righteousness. It's about trust in our God because that is the gospel. The hope that we first heard was that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is the hope that we have. That is what we stand firm in. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we take this time now to, to, Lord, stand and sit before you and give you thanks for your grace upon our lives. That, Lord, no matter the failure or the sin, for Jesus Christ and him being our hope, we are defined as holy and blameless and above reproach. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to stand firm in that hope. That the joy of our salvation would continue to ever fill our lives. And that Lord, as it does so, we would continue to draw ever closer with you. We give you thanks for our reconciliation to our creator. To you, our Abba Father. And Lord, we just continue to ask that that relationship would continue to grow and deepen. Help us not to shrink back based on misunderstandings, on deceptions, and on the accusations of the enemy. But help us to run to you, a God who, as that song reminded us earlier, your arms are open. Lord, help us to put down the chains and take up our name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite the band up now and we're going to sing a song which just epitomizes that hope that we have. We're going to stand together before we share communion together and we're going to sing in Christ alone.